for Beyond Profit, a podcast of the ANA Center for Brand Purpose. I'm Ken Beaulieu. In a world of constant commotion, social unrest, and political upheaval, where employees and customers demand authenticity from companies, Minter Dial believes that business leaders must rethink what's important. In his new book, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader, Minter argues that when leaders create an employee-first, customer-centric culture and have the courage of their convictions, they can bring a brand's purpose to life, build trust, and drive sustained growth. An international speaker, author, and consultant, Minter has worked with world-class companies to help activate their brand strategies and purpose. He joins me to discuss his book, How Brands Can Hit on the Right Purpose, Why Having a Chief Ethics Officer Raises Red Flags, and much more. Minter, welcome to Beyond Profit. Ken, thank you so much for having me on. It's a great topic, great uh, idea to work on moving beyond profit. Love it. Terrific. Well, I'm so happy to have you here. Talk about perfect timing for the release of a book on leadership, given the times. Well, yes, the only issue is a, is a book, and uh, the challenge is making a book come alive when you're just sitting at your desk, isolated and quarantined, if you will, uh, wherever you are in the world. But otherwise, I hope the topic is on on topic, on cue. Minter, when you look back at the craziness of the past year, I'm curious what you thought companies did right perhaps where they fell short and your expectations moving forward? I suppose the hard part is to actually know exactly what went on because the area that for me is of most of interest is to understand how the culture adapted to the situation within companies. There are obviously all sorts of financial things you need to take care of. Do you have cash to pay the bills? Are you going to take the options of the government's offer to furlough? And, and but how are you treating your employees? And so I think that there were many cases of good intentions, and unfortunately there were some less good intentions, as in using this opportunity to, to cut some corners, maybe cut some people, also potentially not dealing properly with what are, what are serious mental health issues, challenges for some people who are working in isolation, whereas the CEO just, you know, had the chance to go to a second country home and isolate, quote-unquote, and have the hardship of only getting to walk his dogs two times every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people you know, would be stuck living with roommates or with children or with an unhappy or bad spouse. And, and so there's been probably a lot of mistakes made on that level in companies, and I certainly have heard about them, but I'm not here to badmouth them. Do you feel overall that CEOs and major brands stepped up during the pandemic? Uh, 
on our look. He stood up and said, well, we're going to convert some of our factories, because they, they have many factories that produce alcohol, whether it's for alcohol itself or as alcohol within fragrances, for example. And they really, within the space of, of, of two weeks, once the, the, this whole pandemic had hit stride, converted their factories to provide sanitizer gel. And as much as there might be some cynicism about whether that was a PR coup, the speed with which they announced it, jumped on it, acted it, is very, very commendable. And, uh, and then you saw lots of other companies in the same industry almost feeling obliged to follow suit. So that was a standout example. So for those brands that really stood for something and continue to moving forward, what would you say marketers can learn from them? I think the issue for so many companies is that they don't know what they stand for. It sounds like obvious. For example, I mean, I even think that many companies don't actually have a good, well-shared, strong vision of their own strategies. To wit, you see so many companies have internal fighting and, and issues with allocation of resources behind what they really want to do. But I think the, the strong thing to do is to lean into what you stand for. The great opportunity to qualify by acts the types of behaviors that show your values, as opposed to just have them written on the wall in the annual report. How do you want to make your values come alive in this situation? And whether, and as, you know, hopefully as soon as the situation has passed, it's the same deal. But whatever you're doing, how are you going to make your values and your ethics come alive? And, and you'll know, take another example, which is off the beaten path at least with regard to pandemics. But when, when a company is looking, for example, to integrate into artificial intelligence into its business. How, how do you want to manifest your ethics and your values in the way that the AI is going to operate to help you solve your particular problems? Just a perfect example of how to drill down and make your values come alive. Otherwise, you've got this, all this eye-rolling that's typically going to go on. Oh, yeah, we really believe in innovation, but um, not now. So in your book, Minter, you write that being a force for good creates quote, an infinite well of extra energy for a company. So how does that manifest itself inside and outside of business? I have to wind this one back a little bit because there's a sort of a journey that I'd like to take you on, Ken. That is that a company that makes no profit is no good. It serves no purpose. You do have to be attentive to profit and cash. That's extremely pragmatic. Turns out the customers are the ones that are usually paying the bills. A lot of companies certainly had to wake up to this fact once they, they got the, the customers started to get some power in their hands in the form of the ability to complain in social media or manifest their unhappiness elsewhere, which ended up showing up in the profits. But so we, we moved from being just profit-centered to being focused on the customer. And, and it's amazing, Ken, to see how many companies have said, oh, well, we really want to be, we believe in the customer, we need to be customer-centric. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I, I, I would say something, over 50% of companies nowadays have in their top three strategic imperatives improving the customer experience. Great, I say. Yet, the issue is that the, the way we customers interact with companies has changed, not just because of internet, but in, on balance, we've got now many more people we can deal with in interactions with the company. And those people are making the brand come alive, the experience, the customer experience come alive in the eyes and hearts of the customers. So that means that you actually have to have a special attention to your employees who are delivering the satisfaction. And here's the rub. When you tell your employees, hey, listen, we really think it's important to be customer-centric. That's the most important. 
important thing. Inevitably, at some level, the employee's going to turn around and say, but hey, what about me? And the, the example I have, uh, which I write about, is, is Amazon. And a great company, obviously, you know, everyone who's a shareholder could be happier, Bezos included. Yet they've made this mission, which is to be the most customer-centric company on this earth, which is lovely, except as we have seen, employees don't necessarily feel the love. They're doing all the fulfillment, getting those patches out, dealing with all the customer service that's, that's so, you know, wonderful. But they're like, well, crap, I, I get paid poorly, I'm working in bad conditions, and yes, we're making a profitable, customer-centric company, but wait. And, and so outside of some of the union fights and some of the other issues we've seen, the challenge is that this is a mission that doesn't speak to the employee. The employees are very proud to work for Amazon, great. They're going to come in, they're going to do their best, they're going to have good intentions. But that is basically what most employees do in most companies. The, the, the challenge that I lay down for Amazon is to figure out some kind of purpose that speaks to the employee. Because if you get a purpose that speaks to the employee, then the employees are going to jump out of their bed. They're going to be so happy to do what they're doing because it's also making them grow, not just in their pocketbook or in the bank account, but them as individuals. So that's what I mean by being employee first, customer centric. And if you can get that kind of energy, you're going to you're going to find the discretionary energy of your employees doing and going beyond the pale because that is where you get true competitive advantage. Because basically, all your competitors have good products. All your employees of all the companies are generally wanting to do a good job because they don't want to get fired. But if you can create an environment where your employees are thinking about what they can do and, and, and being that sort of magic energy that, whoa, this is so exciting, I get... I feel better, I feel good about what I'm doing, and it's making me as an individual grow, then you tap into that extra energy that I talk about. Mitra, I want to go back to a comment you just made a minute or so ago about the fact that you have to be attentive to profit. Now, there's this train of thought out there that as you become more purposeful, that perhaps you'll lose sight of that end goal, which is to make money. Are, are, you, are you sensing that, or is that just an overblown discussion out there? employee 
activities and and that's your gig as opposed to you know how can i do x plus 10 times growth and and drive and get those monumental profit numbers and, and huge stock returns and make all the, the wall street happy you you can do that and and by the way maybe some companies do and they succeed because there's not enough competition or because they're just brilliant to do what they do but it's not a, a way for me to create a, a good legacy and individuals who operate like that and i include the people who are in wall street who are only looking at the way that their stock returns are happening they should have other ways of, of assessing their, their life's success but until wall street turns the corner and opens up that some people will just be hamstrung and have to continue to pay the piper i i, I don't i don't see companies easily moving towards purpose first without boarding Does that speak to a point that you argue in your book about if you make purpose purely professional, it's decidedly limiting? My question is, you know, what are companies overlooking? that are just starting on their purpose journey, trying to discover their purpose, or for those who are rethinking it. You also make the argument in your book that it's better to have a purpose that resonates than one that is too noble in nature. I love that, and, and I'd hope you could just sort of expand on that. You know, how does a brand hit on the right purpose? Here's what I'm going to do, Ken. I want to roll it back a second, because I don't know about you, Ken, but I have two youngish children still sort of starting out in the real world, if mm. you will, after university. And if you ask them, hey, what's your passion? What's your purpose? They're going to look at me as they do. Hey, dad, pa, that's <laughs> enough. Uh, you know, whatever. And, and I think it's very fair. Like, you know, there's occasionally that kid that's a 
because I know I want to be a fire truck driver or whatever. But for the rest of us, it's, it's a journey. And, and to learn who we are, what is our core passion, what is our purpose, it's a long journey. And if you're a startup that just began and, and you survived 12 months, and, and I come over and I say, hey, what's your purpose? Survive. Thank you. I'm not going to look at them with a raised eyebrow like, well, that's not enough. But, well, thank God you survived. You've done 12 months. Fantastic. And here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. Rather than sort of quickly sit down, well, what is your purpose? What is your big mission that's beyond you and profits? I'm going to say, what are you doing that's meaningful? And, and I, I like to break that down into five different ways to bring meaningfulness into what you're doing as a job. And by the way, one of them, is being successful. Because if you're not successful, then you serve no purpose. I mean, you're going to go out of business. Right, that right. doesn't do anybody any good. Yeah, good point. And then another version of it is winning and enjoying, having fun. So that's also useful. So remember to have fun. But then it gets bigger and more important, the style, the, the timbre of meaningfulness that you can inject into your business. And here's the thing to do when you're running the business. If you can identify what you're doing as a business and how it's meaningful, then, then what you need to do as a leader of this company, let's say you've got 10 employees, 20 employees, whatever, as you start going to getting bigger, you need to keep on reminding what the employees your team is doing that's important and how it's contributing to making the company succeed. And that is also giving them meaningfulness. They exist. They're being heard. They are contributing to what you're doing. And then finally, there is this notion of bigger purpose. Because you might be making widgets. But widgets are used where? Well, they might be used for rivets in a in big steel plates that are stuck on big ocean liners that are transport ships that help the world trade go around. All right, so what you're doing is you're contributing to world trade by making these widgets. That's, I'm, I'm inventing a story. But at least what, I'm, what I feel then is that I'm going to organize my business and things we do to help world trade get around. I do it in the physical object in the form of a widget that's a rivet, but I'm also going to do it in, in other ways. And so that becomes your bigger mission. How can I facilitate world trade? Okay. Now that becomes a bigger purpose. And of course, to begin with, you've got to survive in certain meaningfulness. And little by little, uh, you can sort of open up to this idea of helping world trade. And maybe you're going to participate in think tanks to improve world trade and cutting down barriers, maybe mm -hmm. reducing tariffs, so whatever you might want to think is relevant to improving world trade. And that is, for me, a, a good path for small companies that's realistic because I'm not putting the cows or, or you know, the horses in front of the cars, trying to make it in a path that is possible because I know how it is being a small entrepreneur. I mean, I started two small companies, one that got to five people, another one that got to 30 people. And, you know, it's lovely to do, can't always be on purpose, and you can't do everything that's big. Sometimes you just got to do what you got to do, because you got to pay the bills. That's good. That's great advice. Mentor, one of the, at least for me, most eye-opening passages in your book was this whole notion that hiring a chief ethics officer is a sign that a company has an underlying problem. How does a business maintain ethical standards if you don't have such a watchdog? Switched on. So, what did, what did 
they created a chief digital officer. And that was some kind of geek that had no credibility on the board, but hey, listen, at least we hired a chief digital officer. Or you might have had diversity and inclusion is important. So what do you do? You hire a diverse person and nominate them to be the chief diversity officer. But uh, all of these mindsets, whether it's digital, diversity, or ethics, these should be integrated throughout the company and as such become personal agendas. Because if I, if I don't believe in diversity as an individual, the chief diversity officer comes to me and I don't believe you're, you believe in diversity. Oh, either you fire me, but uh, you, you need to tap into me as an individual. And of course, you, you should start doing that with all your recruitment. You need to establish what that looks like. And then the, the fact is that that type of acceptance of diversity, of thought, of color, whatever it is, happens in little micro moments throughout the day. And it's impossible for a chief ethics officer to get that and understand that and, and be the fly on the wall of each of these micro moments. Another one, another example is sustainable development. Mm-hmm. Well, they hire somebody and you position them as the chief of sustainable development. And what are they trying to do? Well, they're going to try to cut down on use of paper and electricity and everything. But what, what that what needs to happen is that the individual who's in an office somewhere in the world, they need to, they're leaving the office, they turn off the light. They ask, do I need to photocopy this? Do they use double-sided paper? And other, you know, if the chief ethics officer, sustainability officer, is being able to micromanage all these moments, so it has to be something that everybody in the organization onboards. And so, with regard to ethics, coming to your question, finally, can you ensure that ethics are, by definition, personal? That's how you define them, and that they are good and bad, and you're going to be enacting your ethics throughout your day. You're going to do some good things, some bad things. You make that choice at the personal level. And, and so what's incumbent uh, upon leadership is to establish what do you expect and manifest what is the behaviors that stands up for or represents these ethics. It goes all the way down to the AI question that I was at the very beginning. Because when you create an ethical framework, it's very difficult to put in place. Well, I mean, basically regulations, when they create ethical frameworks for regulations, for example, around privacy, they're very broad and they put a big frontier, but there's all sorts of room within it to go good and bad. And so what you want to do as a leader is create an ethical framework that speaks to how you operate within the company, towards your customers, and even in your bots and AI, which have black boxes. So that this ethical framework is congruent and consistently operated throughout your organization at your overall level. And it's very difficult for a chief ethics officer who doesn't have a good grip on AI to get a good grip on what is the ethics that my AI is implementing. So that's going to be down to the person who's briefing the programmers who are doing the coding of Python into the AI. So you've got to get everybody on board that one person run the whole story. It sounds to me like the business world is too caught up in titles. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. I mean, we are human beings and we like our titles. And I'm not going to take that away. You know, sometimes some titles are useful. And, and you do obviously need sometimes to have a flag bearer to show that this is what's important to us. When you're in a large organization, what I'm saying is somewhat idealistic because the reality is you do need to create that ethical framework. Or in digital transformation, sometimes you do need to when you have a pipeline of, of, of understanding what's happening in the digital world, and that person can, amongst other things, organize the way the organization learns about digital. So, of course, as I said, it's a somewhat provocative statement, 
and, and some titles are okay. But on balance, it kind of makes me look astens. And today, for example, I think that people are still calling it digital transformation. I'm like, whoa, 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 wait. Uh, Google's now been around for, gosh, 30 years. Uh, we can't still be talking about digital transformation. We need to be talking about mindset transformation, culture transformation that helps use whatever digital opportunities exist. And uh, that's why it becomes far, far broader. You also write in your book, and studies show this too, that the brands we buy reaffirm our own set of values and identity. So what steps should brands take to ensure a customer-centric mindset? perspective. Um, and it's perspective like that and the insights that you share in the book that just make it just such a fascinating read. I'd like to end our conversation, uh, Minter, with, with this question. 
you believe that customer success is ultimately tied to your own success, which I just think is perfect. And I'm hoping that you can elaborate on that. Absolutely. So again, I'm going to go back to my days at L'Oreal. I worked there for 16 years. And an issue with a lot of industries is that you have middle players, middle men to call it uh, one way, but they might be distributors. For example, Walmart might be distributing your product. And the question is, do you want to consider them customers, partners, distributors, enemies? And so you have the whole spectrum. And what you tend to get is, oh, well, we, they're our partners. Well, you need them because they're helping you distribute you. And if you go in with the idea that they are your partners, you might come out with them as a distributor and not the enemy. Whereas if you consider them like customers, even though they're not your end customers, because the people going to buy the products at Walmart mm-hmm. who are the customers of your brand. You know, they're the ones that have the shampoos in the bathroom. They go to the Walmart, and, and if you can make your distribution, if you have some selectivity in the way you approach this, what you want is to have distribution that succeeds. Because mm-hmm. if they succeed, they're healthy, they're going to pay you. But at a very practical level, you want to have partners that are successful. And it depends on just how far you want to go. But if you can do things that make your customer better and have them succeed, then you will succeed. It's about making your customer success and broadly defining your customer, in this case, as the stakeholders that get your product to market. And if they're successful, like you know, the person who makes the bustle, that's a supplier, and you want them to be successful. So, of course, you're going to try to negotiate the cheapest price. But going about and negotiating it such that they make the bottle below cost for them, then they're going to run them out of business. That's the way you want to operate. You have to be intelligent about it and think about the win-win. Because if you make that bottle supplier, just to say that's one of the small participants in the whole gig, but if you can make them feel like, well, we are there to help you grow and make your bottling more profitable and happier shareholders as well, as opposed to just cutting costs and saying and negotiating sort of head to head that battle that so often happens between suppliers and customers, then then why are they going to bust their button and give you some better exclusivity or better service? Because they're just razor thin margins that they're operating on. So you have to find the balance ways to help all your customers and people on the full supply chain work. And to get us to go back to the Redkin example and why Redkin was so powerful. Their mission was earn a better living, live a better life. And in their mission was not to think of their customers like the sound as partners, but really as their customers. When we chose our distributor network, we thought of them as customers as well, even though really what we were aiming for was partnership. But if we treated them like customers, they'd feel like partners. So it was, because in the industry, it's not always easy. And, and by the way, we were never always perfect either. But to have that intention of aiming for customer success, then you'll have a happier chain, value chain, including your suppliers, your distributor, your salon owners, and let them earn a better living. Why not? But along the way, and much bigger, help them to live a better life. Now that is what was more powerful. That's where the juice was in our purpose. Fantastic. What a, what a great way to end. Minter, thank you so much for joining me on Beyond Profit. It is my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on, Ken. And uh, let's keep pushing for Beyond Profit. But not forget, we have to be profitable, right?
Yes, exactly. Absolutely. To learn more about Minter and his new book, You Lead, visit MinterDial.com. That's MinterDial, D-I-A-L.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.